John chapter 19 this morning. John chapter 19. We're doing things a bit differently this morning. We're still going to have our special, actually going to have two of them, but they're going to be interworked into the message this morning. Uh, John chapter 19, we're looking at verses 4 to 6. John 19, verses 4 to 6. And if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, please stand. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Lord, we thank you for this morning, Lord. We thank you for our church, Lord. Again, we want to be, we'll pray for those families that lost their loved ones this week. Lord, please be with them. Please comfort them, Lord. Uh, please keep our church safe, Lord. Protect us on into the future. Keep us each individually safe, Lord, and our children safe. Lord, please be with our message this morning, Lord. Please be in all parts of it, Lord. Please guide my tongue, guide my thoughts. And you lead in the rest of this service today, Lord, as, as you have led already. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. The title of our message this morning is Behold the Man. Behold the Man. Um, carelessness can be quite costly. I remember back in Indiana when I was working at that trucking company, the place where Michael's working at now, uh, we, we had an incident where a driver simply just grabbed the wrong trailer. The Chicago plant that we service, and, and they still service, I have what they call sequence parts. They have sequence trailers. Everything has to arrive in a certain order, and they're arriving like in 30, 45 minutes each other, a certain order. It all has to be timed perfectly or the plant will shut down. And well, basically what happened was this driver, it was just like one number different. He grabbed the wrong trailer and took off from Detroit, got into Chicago, pulled up to unload. It's the wrong parts. We don't need these yet. So it shut the plant down. Our, our company got fined and, and Ford had to pay for a couple hours of, of their men just standing around. And there's thousands of working there that are standing around for a couple hours. It cost us over $20,000. We had to reimburse Ford for that simple mistake of one number wrong on a trailer. Carelessness can be costly. Uh, in our passage, we looked at last week in chapter 18, now in chapter 19, we see the carelessness of Annas and Caiaphas in following uh, their, their religious customs. They were careless about, about that. We see Pilate careless about his leadership. And this and these trials, everybody knowing they're doing it wrong, but yet they just keep right on marching to that conclusion. Carelessness can be costly. Uh, and also, we dare not be careless about the cross and dare not be careless about our, our celebration of Easter, our celebration of the resurrection. Uh, I think too many times that Christians are celebrate Easter in a less than reverent manner, and it minimizes the terror and seriousness of what happened on Easter. Uh, God's Son died for us. That's about as serious as it can get. We need to be reverent towards that thought, not careless towards that thought. So let's look at uh, verses 1 to 3, our first point, the unjust judgment of the just. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Ultimately, Pilate gave in to that bottom line argument we'll see in verse 12, 
But he said, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. For this pagan politician, career survival was loomed more important than truth. And I think we see that also today. In our politicians, I think you can call a lot of them pagan. Career survival is more important than truth. I'm seeing a lot of parallels in this account of Jesus' crucifixion with our day and time. In typical Roman fashion, a process began with the humiliation of the prisoner. We're familiar with the flogging. We're familiar with the crown of thorns, the mockery of the soldiers. Cruelty has always been a major hallmark of sin in this world. And the Romans had honed it to a fine art. And again, we see cruelty as a hallmark of sin in our country. We saw that this week. We need to keep praying for our country, keep praying for those families. You know, transgenderism is not a new sin. It is not something new under the sun. It's ancient. It's demonic in its origins. It was associated with much violence back then and the worship of that, and it also was associated with violence against oneself, and it still is. Cruelty has always been a major hallmark of sin in this world. We see it in our day and time. We saw it this week, and like I said, the Romans had honed it to a fine art. So we need to be careful. And I'll mention this already. We need to be careful. We need to be more assertive about this issue. I think many churches have just tried to ignore this issue. We have to be more assertive about this issue. And I think this week woke a lot of churches up. I think it woke a lot of churches up. We need to be in prayer for the violence in our world. Now back to our passage. You know, Pilate, I believe, never intended crucifixion. He expected to beat Jesus and release him. Jesus was likely beaten twice then. Now, the first was likely what is called, and I'm going to mispronounce this, Fustagadio. It was a, the least severe flogging on the Roman menu, the least severe flogging. Pilate most likely ministered this, thinking this will appease them, this will settle them down. I'll release this man that I can't find any fault in, and then the crowd will be pleased that he got beaten and we can just move on. But they didn't, they wouldn't accept that. So Pilate then, after someone was found guilty or sentenced to crucifixion, the law required a flogging to be administered then. So likely Jesus was flogged twice. This was the most severe flogging on the Roman menu. Pilate likely administered this, and then that would explain by uh, Jesus, but that would likely be a good explanation as to why Jesus stumbled and he was so weak and he couldn't carry his own cross because most would have been beaten once at that point and he was most likely beaten twice at that point so you can imagine the state of his back the state of his body at that point now let's look at verses four to six behold the man Pilate therefore went forth and saith unto them behold i bring him forth to you that you may know that i find no fault in him then came jesus forth wearing a crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. And the chief priests therefore and officers saw him. They cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Pilate repeatedly declares Jesus innocent. I find no fault in him. Not, I don't find enough fault in him to crucify him. I find no fault in him. But still, Pilate orders Jesus to be crucified. The spotless lamb was ordered to be slain for sinners. 
Like the sacrificial lambs were carefully examined for pureness before they were sacrificed, so too was Jesus, and he was found spotless. No fault in him was found. So this is a cruel, sin-filled world, and sometimes the innocents are killed by evil-filled men and women. Jesus was innocent, and he was killed by evil men. He understands what that's like for innocents to be killed by evil. So let's look to him for the encouragement we need. Let's look to him for strength we need. Let's look for him for the endurance that we need and the endurance that we are going to need on into the future. Let's look to him for comfort as we navigate this sin-scarred, evil-filled world and as we navigate a different America moving forward. It's different than it was just last week. Maybe it was already different. We didn't realize it. But it's definitely a different America now. The scales have been removed from everybody's eyes, I believe, at this point. It's a different America. So let's pray for the Lord to give us the endurance, the comfort, the wisdom to navigate this new America we live in. So now after the humiliation of the prisoner, the law required a formal presentation, and Pilate did the honors. Perhaps he thought the bloody side of a beaten country and removed these Jews' pity. But as he uttered the words, Behold the man, the crowd became even more violent in their clamoring for crucifixion. Sin can cause people to be violent. Sinners need Jesus. Now the Jews attempted to evoke blasphemy against Jesus. Again, I think Brother Chuck broke into my house last night and, and saw my notes. He missed last week, but I think he, he, he started back up again this week. John 19.7, the Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. The Jews attempted to invoke the law of blasphemy as a basis for their claims that Jesus must die. This was based on Leviticus 24.16, which says, And he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death. So they're trying to base their claim on that. Speaking of that topic, we see a lot of blasphemy right now in our world, all around us. The world is blaspheming God in their words. The world is blaspheming God in their conduct, in their speech. The world needs the Lord. This week should motivate us to get busy. It is urgent. If we didn't think time was running out, Time is running out. Most likely, I would say all of us are going to be alive at the rapture, the way this world is looking. Time is running out. It's urgent. The world needs Jesus. We've got to get busy. So we've, we notice that Pilate feared something. So what did Pilate fear? Look at verses 8 to 11. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest not thou knowest not that I I have power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? Now notice Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Pilate returned to another interrogation. He's like, I've got to figure out what's going on. Why are they so mad at this man? Why do they want him dead? He was already afraid. Pilate was already afraid of his volatile situation. He was afraid of this crowd. His fear is increasing. He tried to get some more information, any information out of Jesus that would help him arrive 
at a mutually satisfactory conclusion to this whole incident. So what did Pilate fear? Quite possibly, Pilate feared this quiet prophet, who for reasons unknown to the governor, had evoked such emotional response from the mobs outside the palace. Notice when the people were confronted with the truth of who Jesus is and the ramifications of what he taught, they got violent. And confronted with the truth of who Jesus is and then the ramifications to them, based on what he taught, based on what truth is, they got violent. Because it would then mean their perception of who they were and how they relate to this world was wrong. Again, I see that parallel to our day and time. They could not accept that truth from Jesus. They could not accept the truth of Jesus. They could not accept what he taught. So they got violent. They lashed out in violence against Christ. And we're seeing that in the world more, that lashing out in violence against those that represent Christ in this world. Pilate was also most likely afraid of this violent God-rejecting mob, lest they break that Roman peace. Ultimately, all Roman governors feared Caesar, though, and the Jews knew that very well. This is why they said in verse 12, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. This was a veiled threat by the Jews. If Pilate exonerated Jesus, which it seemed like he was wanting to do, the high priest would report to Rome that Pilate had refused to bring a rival pretender to justice and perhaps plotting to establish a new political alliance of his own. Thus, Tiberius, notoriously bitter and suspicious of rivals, if that report got to Rome, most likely Pilate would be removed and, and even more likely he'd been put to death. So Pilate was very afraid of this whole situation. It was getting out of control. But what did Pilate really fear? I think verse 11 may be the key to let us know what Pilate really feared. Look at verse 11 again. Jesus answered, Thou could have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. I think at this point it may have been starting to dawn on Pilate that perhaps this man, that this Jesus character is more than just a man. Maybe he is the Son of God. I think that was starting to dawn on Pilate, and Pilate was getting fearful. But he's also fearful of other things. Now Jesus speaks after some silence. The Gospels emphasize Jesus' silence at various points during the trial and fulfillment of Isaiah 53.7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. So Jesus has been silent. He's been silent, not opening his mouth, not answering back. But suddenly after being silent, Jesus speaks up again only after Pilate emphasized his own power. Jesus had to correct that. Jesus' answer proclaimed that a Roman governorship was nothing in the eyes of Almighty God. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. That Roman governorship was nothing compared or nothing in the eyes of Almighty God. Our government is nothing in the eyes of God. We serve God. It's nothing to Him to intervene and change any situation. Our government is nothing in the eyes of Almighty God. And one day they will see that. One day they will see that. 
Notice next, they were begging for crucifixion. Look at verses 13 to 16. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement. But in the Hebrew, Gabbatha, the Jewish leaders and the Jewish crowd were begging for Jesus to be crucified. And it was a preparation of the Passover about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he them therefore unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. Back in a corner of fear and confusion, bewildered by this articulate prophet and frightened by the threat of some kind of political report to Rome, Pilate caved, that weak backbone gave in, in their misguided zeal, the Jews were already out of control. Behold your king. Look at verse 14 again, that last phrase. He saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. The last time Jesus was on earth and presented to them as their king, they rejected him and demanded his crucifixion. But the next time he comes, the next time Jesus steps foot in Israel, the next time Jesus or the Jews hear those words, Behold your king, they will cheer. They will shout for joy. They will bow in humble adoration. They will worship him. They will honor him. They will love him. He will be their Messiah. He will be their king. I can't imagine that scene. They will recognize him as their king. And what a day that will be. I cannot wait for that day. I cannot wait to see that day. Jesus standing in Jerusalem, perhaps standing on the wailing wall, and the masses and masses of Jews and, and Christians and those saved during the tribulation just Hosanna on the highest and worshiping him. Praising him. I can't wait for that day. I can't wait for that day. This week has got me longing so much to go home. This world is not our home. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see and I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day, that will be. From the lofty courts of heaven came a bud on earth to bloom. Knowing when he left his father that his fate would be the tomb. But the grave, it could not hold him. Angels rolled the stone away. Now the mighty rose of Sharon is still blooming yet today. But the next time he comes, he won't have to die for me. The next time he comes, there won't be a Calvary. The next time he comes, we'll begin eternity. And when he comes again, he'll be 
remember when I met him, how the spirit took control. He established my going. Now he stars in my life's role. For a man to come from heaven, knowing then of Calvary, oh, what love beyond measure that he'd give his life for me. But the next time he comes, he won't have to die for me. The next time he comes, there won't be a Calvary. The next time he comes, we'll begin eternity. And when he comes again, he'll be coming for me. Amen. And now we're going to look at that cruel crucifixion. Pilate's sign was written in the language of the Jews, language of the Roman Empire, and the language of the culture and commerce, which is Greek. Only John, now among the apostles, remained close as the Savior died. Look at verses 17 to 18. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. We know too well the narrative of our Lord's crucifixion between two thieves. John had little to say about the pain and agony of the Roman crucifixion. John's passion account was vested in his eyewitness understanding that the one who hung on the cross was the Messiah of Israel. The prophet of God predicted in the Old Testament. And in line with the theme of fulfilled prophecy, John emphasized what some other gospel writers omitted. He emphasized the division of the clothes, the casting of lots for the garment, the offering of the vinegar, the breaking of the legs of the thieves, and the piercing of Jesus' side with a Roman spear. And John told us repeatedly that these events specifically fulfilled Scripture. John was very concerned with pointing out all the Scripture and prophecy. That was filled. Jesus' placement between two thieves was a position probably intended to disgrace the Lord, but even the position of the cross fulfilled prophecy since Isaiah had said, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors, Isaiah 53, 12. One commentator described the scene well. He wrote, The crossbeam of the cross was placed on his torn shoulders like an oar, this weighed over 100 pounds. As Christ stumbled along that route to Calvary, an officer preceded him carrying the placard describing Jesus' crime. It read, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews, customarily a man about to be crucified, was led to the side of his execution by the longest route possible, so that everyone might see that crime does not pay, and also to give opportunity to anyone who might speak up in his defense. So it was that Christ trod the Via Dolorosa so weakened, finally that a bystander had to be drafted to carry the cross the rest of the way. At the place of execution, spikes were driven through his hands or wrists, and the crossbar was hoisted into place. His legs were nailed, leaving only enough flex in the knees so that he could begin the horrible up-and-down motion necessary for breathing. Down the Via Dolorosa, 
in Jerusalem that day. The soldiers try to clear the narrow street, but the crowd pressed in to see the man condemned to die on Calvary. He was bleeding from a beating. There were stripes upon his back. And he wore a crown of thorns upon his head. And he bore with every step the scorn of those who cried out for his death. Down the Via Dolorosa, called the way of suffering, like a lamb came the Messiah. Christ the King, but he chose to walk that road out of his love for you and me. Down the Via Dolorosa, all the way to Calvary, the blood that would cleanse the souls of all men made its way through the heart of Jerusalem. Down the Via Dolorosa, called the way of suffering, like a lamb came the Messiah, Christ the King. But he chose to walk that road out of his love for you and me. Down the Via Dolorosa, all the way to Calvary. Amen. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Look at verses 19 to 22. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read, Many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city. And it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my rent among them. For my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. The placard was accurately written. The chief priest wanted Pilate to change it, but he would not. This, of course, was with the sovereignty of God. The placard was correct. They were crucifying Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Uh, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen says, "They parted my garments; they part my garments among them, and cast lots upon my vesture." We see that fulfilled in this passage, John. Now let's look at the commitment of Mary. The commitment of Mary, John nineteen twenty-five to twenty-seven. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother. And his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus therefore saw his mother 
and disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he, the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. Jesus committed his mother to John. Perhaps at this point Mary might have remembered Simeon's prophecy. And Simeon blessed him and said unto Mary, His mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. And for a sign which shall be spoken against, yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Luke 2, 34-35. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. This kind of jumped out at me when I was studying this passage this week. Jesus put together the two people he loved most on this earth. That is no accident. The one disciple most capable of loving, he's called the apostle of love, the one disciple most capable of loving, most capable of showing love, most capable of caring for someone else, he put with his mother, thus ensuring she would be greatly loved and greatly cared for the rest of her life. Jesus was taking care of his mother as he hung on that cross. That's just amazing to me. He was fulfilling the Old Testament commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, Exodus twenty twelve. But he was not just honoring his mother at that moment. He was also honoring his father as he hung there on the cross, dying on the cross for the sins of the world. Now let's look at the necessary and intentional death. God's holiness and God's justice made the cross an absolute necessity. Events at the crucifixion happened as they did, so the scripture might be fulfilled, John 19.28-29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and he filled a sponge with vinegar and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. Wine vinegar was given to Jesus here. Uh, it was given, and we are told, to contract the throat muscles. It was also given in reference to fulfillment of prophecy in Psalm 69.21. In my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. But we are told it was given to those on the cross or those being crucified to constrict their throat muscles so it would hinder them from being able to scream out in pain. It was given to those that watched crucifixion so they wouldn't have to be bothered by the screams of those on the cross. So they constricted their throat muscles so they couldn't scream, but also it made it more difficult to breathe, thus increasing the pain, increasing the agony, but also making it more, a little bit more palatable to those. That's just... Horrible cruelty. Now let's look at it is finished. John 19.30 When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. It is finished. This refers to the task of bringing salvation to the human race. We should remember the prayer Jesus uttered earlier. John 17.4 I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. It is finished translates from tetelestai. That appears that tetelestai appears in the perfect tense. To me, even the grammar signifies the full completion and perfection of Jesus' work. It is finished. Sin debt is paid in full. Now, the Son of Man must be lifted up if he is to save those who believe. Everything comes from the love of God. The death of Christ is to be construed in harmony with God's love. And apart from the cross, men are lost, they perish. It's only because of the cross that we can have eternal life. I want you to notice Jesus died of his own volition. Look at verse 30. He bowed his head 
gave up the ghost. Notice it says he gave up the ghost. Jesus voluntarily laid down his life for us. The Roman soldiers did not take his life. Jesus gave up his life voluntarily for us. Jesus provided that substitutionary atonement for us in our place. He died in our place. It is finished. It is finished. That phrase has such power attached to it. It is finished. And one commentator described that this way. He said, it is finished. This Greek phrase denotes such power that if Jesus' hands hadn't been nailed down, it would have been uttered with a clenched fist raised in the air. It was a phrase an artist would use when he put the last stroke on his paper. A writer, when he put the last period on his book, it was a statement a businessman would make when a transaction was final. It is finished. It was also the pronouncement given to a lamb that was ready, that had passed inspection, that was ready to be sacrificed, to Telestai. It is finished. Jesus died for us. It is finished. Look at verses 31 to 33. The Jews, therefore, because it was a preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was nigh, it was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and the other which was crucified with him. And when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was dead already, and they break not his legs. They would break the legs to hasten the death. But they came to Jesus and the legs... Uh, he didn't have to break his legs. He was already dead. He'd already voluntarily gave up his life. Notice the Apostle John. He was careful to note that a specific law relating to the sacrifice was also fulfilled. Uh, he didn't. This was mentioned intentionally. They break not his legs. It stated that no bone of the sacrificial lamb should be broken. Exodus twelve forty six says, Neither shall you break a bone thereof. For it to be a true sacrificial lamb, no bones could be broken. Jesus, no bones were broken. He voluntarily gave up his life. He said, it is finished. He gave up the ghost. He died for us, fulfilling perfectly the sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world. Look at verses 34 to 37. The one, the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water, and he saw that it bare record, and, his rec- and he that saw it bare record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another scripture saith, they shall look on him who they have pierced. With this passage, we can see the word had indeed become flesh, genuine flesh that could bleed, genuine flesh that could die. This piercing of his side was in fulfillment of Zechariah 12.10. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Whom they have pierced. Now let's look at our Savior's burial in verses 38 to 42. Jesus' burial is handled by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, two prominent men who were friends of Jesus. They were also secret believers. The price had been paid. The suffering was over. Satan had been defeated at the cross, but full victory awaited God's power at the open tomb. Look at verses 38 to 39. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, he sought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus, and there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. As a member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph would have had some legitimate access to Pilate's ear. Uh, this act of burying Jesus uh, would, draw, would have drawn attention 
how this act of burying Jesus drew the attention of all four Gospels. Uh, this act of burying Jesus would have drawn attention to Joseph. Nothing but contempt would have been drawn to him as a result of him burying Jesus. Nothing but contempt by those he associated with. Nothing but contempt by those of a religious elite by burying Jesus. One commentator observed, It is not without interest that whereas the disciples who had openly followed Jesus ran away at the end, the effect of the death of Jesus on those two secret disciples was exactly the opposite. Now when they had nothing at all to gain by affirming their connection with Jesus, they came right out into the open. Nothing to gain. They come right out in the open. Look at verses 40 to 42. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen cloths with the spices as a manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. Now Matthew's gospel uh, tells us just a touch different. Matthew 27, 59 to 60 says, And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and laid in his own new tomb, which had been hewn out of, out in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulchre and departed. Did you catch the difference there? John belabored a certain point. John belabored the point that Jesus was buried in a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. He added that extra detail. I notice again in verses 41 to 42 in John chapter 19, In the garden a new sepulchre wherein was never man yet laid, there laid they Jesus. And Matthew simply said, and laid it or laid Jesus' body in his own new tomb, which had hewn out in the rock. Matthew left out that detail, never have a man been laid. That's a very important detail that John inserted here. Most likely, John's purpose in adding that detail is to prepare for what came next. Think about it. He's prepared us for what came next. If on the third day the tomb is empty, that means only one body had disappeared. And only one person could have been resurrected. And that one person could have only been Jesus. John was incredibly prophecy-oriented. He was also incredibly detail-oriented. So now to wrap it up. This chapter reminds us again that we participate in both the cross and the empty tomb. God's Spirit baptizes all believers in Christ's death and resurrection. So we're going to close out with another illustration. His name is most often associated by children playing games in a swimming pool. Marco Polo. Marco Polo is a character of no small significance in the history of Asia. His exploits were celebrated in a television miniseries aired by NBC entitled simply Marco Polo. The second episode offered a scene in which the great Kublai Khan fingered a gold cross that was brought to the Orient by Niccolo Polo. He slowly looked up at his European visitor and said, Yours is the only religion which has transformed an instrument of death into a symbol of glory and power. An instrument of death, a symbol of an instrument of death, it's a symbol to us of glory, power, of new life, resurrection, eternal life. Because yours is the only religion which has transformed an instrument of death into a symbol of glory and power. And that is true. We're going to close out with this. Philip Bliss spoke of all of us when spoke for all of us when still a young man. He wrote both the words and music to one of the most theologically sound and biblically triumphant hymns sung by Christians over the past century. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, 
but a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high, hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, all is ransomed home to bring. And in you this song will sing, hallelujah, what a Savior. If he's not your Savior, make him your Savior.